I get texts from employees that say, I'm on a date night and I haven't been on a date night in three years. And thank you for this opportunity. There's nothing better than that. For someone to really feel like they're pursuing their calling and yet have time with their family. So if I can just continue doing this for the next 30, 40 years and hear well done, good and faithful servant, that is a good life for me. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallra. In today's episode, I got to chat with Taylor Brooks, founder and CEO of Simple Donation. From growing up in Atlanta to attending Auburn University, he shares what inspired him to create an online donation platform for nonprofits and churches, all while balancing a full-time corporate job. What you'll learn about Taylor is that he's all about creating long-term value building relationships, and taking a stewardship mentality in business. In fact, his goal is to continue leading Simple Donation for the next 30 to 40 years. He has a great perspective on persistence, consistency, and creating win-win solutions for customers. I think any new or aspiring founder will resonate with his approach to entrepreneurship. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for making the trip up from Austin. It's great to have people actually in the studio. We can do remote sessions and they they work great, but there's always something nice about seeing people in person. So thanks so much for for making the trip and making the effort. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We always like to start with what was growing up like. So where did you grow up? What was your family like? What was the family dynamic like? Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm a true son of the South. I grew up in a great home. I have a brother who I actually just spent time with this past weekend. We got the kids together. It was really fun. Yeah, dad owned his own business. Grandfather owned his own business. Yeah, just running around. Played sports a lot when I was growing up. I had a really great, great home life. But yeah. What sports were you into? I ran track in high school. I ran cross country in high school. I played golf, tennis. I didn't play football or baseball, but I tried to run the gamut on everything else. And are you still a runner today? I've gotten back into it. Okay. I see you got your whoop and we were talking earlier, you got some other new fitness tracking stuff on the way. So I do. I've started tracking sleep tracking and I just hired a coach this year, a fitness coach. And so I have a goal this year of running a sub seven minute mile. Good for you, man. 501 was my fastest in high school. Dang. And I don't think at 41 that I can break five. So I'm going to set my bar at seven. And then eventually six. I want to run, on, run another five-minute mile at some point in my life. Good for you, man. That is awesome. Going back to growing up, what were you like as a student? Were you a straight-A student? Were you... Awful student. Terrible. Hated school. Okay. I didn't hate it, per se. I felt, and this was more so in college, but in high school, I felt like there was such a disconnect. I just didn't see the through line of, like, how does this connect to real life? I did spend a lot of time just kind of shadowing my dad and shadowing my grandfather. And I just didn't see the connection between what they were doing and how they treated and interacted with their customers and grew their business and what I was learning in school, which is funny now because now I feel like I'm backfilling a lot of the things that I perhaps didn't appreciate. I'm reading a lot of history now. I'm interested in the Roman Empire. And like, it would have been pulling teeth when I was a little kid or in high school and college to appreciate those subjects. So growing up, I did okay in school. I was more focused on sports, but yeah, not 
student wasn't my jam. You mentioned the Roman Empire and lately, like there's been this whole social media blow up about men thinking about the Roman Empire. Were you reading about the Roman Empire before this? Prior. Okay. All right. So you really have been thinking about the Roman Empire. Yes. Okay. Well, I also have a business partner now who is a like history buff. Actually, this is funny. When I knew that he was going to be my partner, we were at a conference in Las Vegas and we were walking around the strip and he, for two and a half hours, just unloaded on this is how Rome fell. And I was fascinated. I was like, how in the world do you know so much? And so that being in proximity to him, spending a lot of time with him, I've gleaned a lot of history and it's infectious. His interest in it has been infectious. Very cool. All right. You mentioned your dad had his own business and did your grandfather also, or were they working together? Yeah. Pops, as he was known, had a plumbing supply company that he ran it had. I mean, imagine what home and even commercial construction was like prior to Home Depot or Lowe's. It was all mom and pop shops. So he owned this plumbing supply company in Atlanta. I think they had 10 locations at the height. He ended up selling it. He was always retired as long as I'd known him. And then he went back into starting a CPA firm. And dad went and worked under him for Brooks and Brooks Associates, which is a CPA firm. My uncle still runs that CPA firm. I'm the black sheep of the family. My brother is a CFO of a construction company, commercial construction company. I'm the only non-CPA in the family. And coincidentally, I run a business. I think you've done okay. I think you've made the family (laughs) proud. So that was kind of their deal was that the accounting practice was what, how that was the intersection of all the family. And then dad ended up doing commercial real estate development. Uncle ended up starting other companies. So there's an entrepreneurial bug in the Brooks genes. Yeah. Thinking about your grandfather going from plumbing supply to being a CPA, those seem worlds apart. Did he have an accounting background or did he just decide one day, I'm going to go sit for my CPA and, and start a, an accounting firm? He had a JD CPA prior to this plumbing supply, but he didn't have the firm. So he, while he was running this company at, you know, post-acquisition, what do I do next? And so he started the accounting practice. I think he did it more so to get reps with other business owners than to like try to build a business. I think he wanted to be in the arena in the game versus, I mean, he didn't need to work. You mentioned you're the black sheep of the family. My brother's a fighter pilot. So like, how do I compete with that? I've started a somewhat successful business and he's the fighter pilot. So I don't know. I feel you there. All right. Growing up in Atlanta, did you guys move around or were you there K through 12 all the way through? Yep. And you went off to Auburn. I did. Or Eagle. Or Eagle. I'm so glad to hear you say that. You know, I went to Texas A&M and we won't talk about the most recent matchup. The Aggies won. I am so sick of Alabama winning things. I'm just so sick of it. And, and actually, it's been kind of nice the last couple of years. But yeah, in the Roll Tide War Eagle, I'm a, I'm a War Eagle. So I don't know how you feel about this, how conflicted you are. And this is perhaps going off topic of this podcast. But when Texas plays Alabama, do you pull for Texas and hold your nose? Or what do you do? Man, I was really conflicted that game. And knowing that we're going to play Alabama I tend to root for the the SEC 
Now, next year, that's going to change, but I would rather play an unbeaten Alabama team because it helps us if by some miracle we actually beat Alabama. I think you got a shot this year. I actually do. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. Auburn, what did you study in school? I wanted to be a pilot. Really? Yeah. Commercial pilot, Navy pilot, Air Force? I didn't want to join the military, but I did want to be a pilot. That is another theme in the Brooks family is aviation. My dad was a Vietnam War veteran and flew Hueys in Vietnam. And I was always interested in planes. I still am. If you look at my YouTube history, you'll see poker and you'll see ATC in plane landings. I just love aviation. So I went to Auburn. I coincidentally, the professional flight program is in the School of Business. I don't know why it's not in the School of Engineering, but I wanted to be a pilot. And 9-11 happened my freshman year. And something that I thought was more, it was clear to me then that this is a hobby I'm trying to turn into a career. And there was less optionality in pursuing a professional flight degree. And so I transitioned to general business, but continued to fly out of Atlanta. It was actually really hard to get hours out of the Austin or Auburn airport. So I flew out of Atlanta and got my license there and then very quickly realized this isn't a career for me. I still enjoy being around planes and look at planes and, but yeah, that was a, not a career choice for me. So ended up going general business. And at the time, Auburn had, there was germinating a entrepreneurship degree. And I was really attracted to that. It was literally the first year that they had started it. So it wasn't fully formed. They didn't have a lot of specific classes around entrepreneurship. It was more of a buffet, you know, go get some HR, go get some management, some MIS, accounting, et cetera. There was two classes that was taught by a professor that I really, really liked. Uh, Michael Kincaid, awesome guy. New Venture Creation was one class and Entrepreneurial Marketing was the other one. And then I took another marketing class, Consumer Behavior, that was in the psychology department. But that professor, just spending time with him after class and drinking beer, and even though he had a one foot in academia, he also had started several businesses. And going back to what I said earlier, he really melded those two together. What does real life experience look like with what you're learning here? in the College of Business. And so that was really formative for me to go, aha, like I was, I think I was a junior at that time when I started uh, studying under him, but really, really enjoyed that. The professor makes all the difference. Like it could be one of the most boring subjects in the world, but if you've got a good professor that really cares about it and has that, you know, just dynamic nature to him, it doesn't really matter what the subject matter is. I 100% agree. And I do it the same today. I feel like I don't read books. I read authors. When I find an author that I really respect and I really resonate with, I try to find their whole catalog. Everything that they've done. Podcasts, videos, articles, op-eds. I just want to read that person's mind. And Kincaid was just a great teacher. And these were entrepreneurship-specific classes. Like, What was the coursework like? A lot of case studies. So following after Harvard, you know, you take a case and then you, you know, argue a position and then you argue the opposite position. And then they don't tell you what the, I don't know what it could be. It was so long ago, but it could be, hey, we're facing the strategic, you know, initiative. How would you basically deploy resources and capital 
and go after this initiative? And what's the right way to do that? And the story was already written, but you would kind of work through that case and different teams. The class would be separated into teams. And then you would get to find out like how it actually played out in real life. And we would just do those over and over and over. So it was a lot of reps of working through cases and different situations. You didn't get the full story. Right. You got the starting elements and you had to go put it together on your own and see how your outcome matched up with the actual case. That's right. Yeah. That is really cool. I wish I had taken a class like that in college. In fact, I think that'd be fun to do today. Yeah. Outside of your classwork, what was your college experience like? Obviously, a lot of SEC football. What else? Were you in a fraternity? Were you involved in things on campus? I was really involved in a campus ministry on campus. You know, I grew up going to church. The Brooks boys had this tradition where every Saturday morning we would go to Waffle House. And I can just remember my grandfather. I could hear him walking up the stairs to come wake me up and singing Amazing Grace. So that's kind of the ethos and world in which I grew up in was hanging out with my grandfather, my dad, my brother, and going to Waffle House and drinking diner coffee and uh, scattered, smothered, and covered hash browns. But I feel like it's common to hear people go off to college, sow their wild oats, and, you know, perhaps walk away from the faith. I had the opposite experience at Auburn. There's a really great campus ministry. I'm still in contact with the director there. And my faith really grew at Auburn. It was a really, really formative time for me and uh, extremely thankful for that. It was through no work of my own, for sure. Do you get back to campus at all? Do you go for games? I haven't been back in forever. I've been to Kyle Field more than I've been to Auburn. All right. What was your first job? Did you work at all in college? Did you work in the family business? I did not work in the family business. In high school, I grew up having, you know, working retail stuff, a cleaners. I worked for a commercial plumber of all things, but not connected with the family business. I did a lot of hard work and I did work through college, building doors, doing carpentry and stuff like that. So are you handy today? No. I mean, I can watch a YouTube video and figure it out. I can figure it out. I've talked once before about this, but I'm not super handy. There are some things that I am capable of doing. Need me to hang a ceiling fan or a light fixture. We're good. The minute it becomes plumbing, like I'm out. Yeah, dad would say gas goes boom. So be careful with that. Good advice. <laughs> we actually had a gas leak in our attic not too long ago, and we had to call the fire department to get it shut off and then bring in the plumber to get it all fixed. And I definitely would not have touched that on my own. Post-college, where did you go from Auburn? Yeah, let me run it to today really quick. I'll just give you a quick 60 seconds. Graduate from Auburn, stay in Atlanta, work for Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, go to family business. Family business, move to Nashville, work in the entertainment industry there. Go from Nashville to starting my own gig and doing little technology projects. In 2010, moved from Nashville to Austin to work for a political consulting firm. Then go to work for a consumer email startup. Then go to work for a SaaS company. Then start Simple. Then go to work for a Fortune 15 company. And then go full-time with Simple. That's the quick rundown from post-college to 2023. That's a pretty diverse background and we'll kind of jump around in there, but 
simple as a software company. It is. Are you a developer? Yes. All right. I didn't hear a whole lot of like software development in college. When you went to Chick-fil-A, were you in the IT? Like, were, were you building apps for Chick-fil-A? I was in IT, but I was more in hardware. Uh, my responsibility there was to basically go around to the different stores, install new point-of-sale systems, train the staff, more so the management on back-office software, how this talks to the corporate office, and then go to the next store. And by the time that you finish the full fleet of stores, it's time to turn a new point-of-sale system and you're on the road. So first job out of college, living on an expense account, being on the road, not having a girlfriend, not being encumbered by you know a family or anything. I say encumbered, that sounds bad. I know what you mean. It was awesome. I got to see a lot of the country through that experience and learned a lot. It was great. So more so on the, the hardware side of IT, there was a team that went in and ran all the networking wires and stuff, but if I was bored, I'd go in at night and run wires and yeah, pull cable, Cat5 and all that. Chick-fil-A is a company that I admire for many, many reasons. Last week, I went through the drive through one night and the young man that took my order was, I don't know, 17, 18. And he looked me in the eye. He called me sir, which I don't need to be called sir, but like the polish and the precision and the my pleasure, like Chick-fil-A just does so many things right. And two things, if I see on a resume, I'll give an interview no matter what, if they worked at Chick-fil-A or if they were an Eagle Scout and may not get the job, but I want to talk to that person because if you've been through the proving ground of Chick-fil-A, man, you got some good stuff going on. So was was it a great place to work for you? And obviously your role was unique and different than what most people think about with Chick-fil-A. You know, I did work in a store in college. I worked in a mall store in college. So it, that wasn't my first exposure to the business. In fact, it actually goes back to high school. You know, being in Atlanta, one of my teammates in track is the current CEO of Chick-fil-A. No way. Yeah. So the Kathy family all went to my high school and... The other side of the Kathy family went to Auburn. And so I am thankful to have an inside peek at how that all works. And that, yeah, it's a great family. It's a great business. They do an amazing job of cultivating that culture and protecting it. I agree with you. I've got a 10-year-old and I'm already thinking your first job is going to be a Chick-fil-A because it's so formative. They do instill hard work and respect, mutual respect for customers. And like you, I have a high admiration for that, that company. All right. Nashville next. When Twitter for my uncle's family, you know, because he was a CPA, he would see a lot of these, what, you know, Buffett and Munger would call cigar butt businesses, perhaps on their way out. And there was one more puff on the cigar. And so he would buy these businesses that his customers wanted to get out of, and he would get them at a fair price and then turn them or liquidate them or whatever. So I went to work for one of those businesses and I worked there for maybe eight to 10 months as kind of a GM and uh, was working and managing this factory that built, of all things, window and door products, which I was connected to in, at Auburn. It was a great experience. And then from there, went to Nashville uh, to work in the entertainment industry. As an entertainer? Are you musical? <laughs> no. No, I worked as a an agent for keynote speakers. So 
folks that would do college commencement speeches or corporate, you know, rah-rah sales meetings or annual meetings. I worked in that industry. Who were the speakers that were in your portfolio? At the time, it was all of the Fox News talking heads. So um, Glenn Beck, Hannity, Coulter, Ollie North, Cavuto. I spent three months on the road with Glenn Beck during his uh, inconvenient book tour. He had just transitioned from, I think it was CNBC to Fox News. This is prior to him moving to Texas. You're still pretty young at this point. You're mid-20s. Yeah. What was that like getting to be around celebrities? I'm not one to be starstruck. I mean, just normal people. But yeah, it was interesting just to see the when someone walks off stage, what are they like on the bus? What are they like when they're, how do they treat other people? Just they're all great. I don't have anything negative to say. Sure. I imagine that with as many people as you were working with, you probably got to see some that were very, very kind and some that were not, don't name names, but is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you have people that are very impressed with themselves and they want other people to know it. That was actually more of a rare case, believe it or not. I think, you know, a lot of talent or comedians or speakers, they treat it like a business. And so there is a need to have some representative that can advocate on behalf of their schedule. I mean, they have families. They, you know, going, traveling across the country requires them to be away from their family. And so if they want, they don't want a private jet because they're a prima donna and they want to fly on a Gulfstream everywhere. They want to be back at their kids' Little League game. And that's the tool that does it. So when you communicate that to a customer, they're like, well, I don't want to pay for a $30,000 round trip Learjet flight. It's like, well, you're not going to get them. Find another speaker. Yeah, that's okay. Like, here's four other options that are in, in your range. So... It was an interesting business to be in. I call it smile and dial. That was my role there was to drum up business. And I had a sheet card of 30 calls and emails, 30 calls, 30 emails, 60 contact points per day, and did that Monday through Friday. Wow. So you cut your teeth in sales, like, and that's hard selling too. That's not inbound, you know, warm, let's work it. You are cold calling. That's correct. How has that helped you in what you're doing today? I like to say I have a mentor that was in the in the entertainment industry as well. And he said, I eat nose for breakfast. And I love that. I would call people and my approach was I would call someone, I'd call some, you know, marketing director, event director in a company and say, You're not interested in a speaker this year, are you? And they go, No. I go, Great. Number two, you're not interested in a speaker this year. And you know, I couldn't make it a full day without finding 30 no's. So it's not personal. It's just my approach to sales and company building is it's meat and potatoes. I'm just going to be persistent and consistent over a long, long, long time. And we're going to grow that way. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I, I can go a long time. I'm pretty persistent and pig-headed. I was at an event this past weekend and they brought in a band to play. The band is called Telephone Friends, which I highly recommend uh, you check out. And there's a line in one of the songs. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's something to the effect of every no is one step closer to a yes. And every yes is the end of a whole bunch of no's or something to that effect. And it was, like I said, worded far better. And I'm like, wow, like spot on. Smiling and dialing. 
traveling around. Did you get to go on the Gulf Stream? Not a Gulf Stream, but I've been on, yeah, I, I traveled on several planes with some of the talent. Yeah, I remember being in a King Air uh, with Huckabee on the way to an event and it being really, really bumpy. And even though I like aviation, uh, you never get used to turbulence. And it was really turbulent. I remember him being cool as a cucumber and going, you know, these planes, they use these planes and hurricanes to like measure the wind. And I was like, that is not helpful right now, Governor. <laughs> My first job out of college, I worked for an aviation services company and we had three company aircraft. And I can remember getting so spoiled at 22, 23, parking my car in the hangar, getting on the company plane and being wheels up, you know, three minutes later, yes. no 23-year-old should get to do that. And we actually had a King Air, I think it was a King Air 250 or something like that. And it's really cool. And to your point, it does seem bougie, but I totally get the mindset of, no, this is how I get home faster. I don't have to go through security. I don't have to get there two hours early. I can just show up and go. Yeah. Goals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I don't have a lot of aspirations for material things. Like I'm, I'm very, very happy with what I've got. And, you know, as I've gotten older, relationships have meant a lot more. But if there is one thing that I could snap my fingers and get, it would be a, jet, a NetJets card. But that'll never happen. It's such a, for me, I don't travel enough to justify the cost. And I'm a homebody anyway. But that would be the indulgence spend that I would have. When you need it, it buys you time. Oh, man. When you have three kids under three and you're trying to go on a trip and haul all these kids through the airport, you're like, I will charter a jet before I do that again. But I don't, my kids are older now and they, you know. They're self-sufficient getting through the airport. Yeah. I can totally relate. I remember those days. My oldest, we put him on a plane when he was probably just a few months old. And on the flight out, we had people coming up to us and saying, when I saw you sit down, I was so nervous to be sitting next to a baby because I just, you know, you get on the plane, the baby cries and oh my gosh, your son, he was just perfect. The trip home was the exact opposite. Screamed the whole way. I'm like cowering in my seat, like, okay, is there a parachute? Can I just jump out of this plane? And Anyway, we're we're well beyond that today, thankfully, but I get what you're saying. Yep. All right. Skipping ahead, of the jobs that you had leading up to starting Simple, where did you learn the most? You mean as far as technology? Technology, business. You know, I had a project post-speaker um, rep career. I was like, what do I want to do now? And I was talking to a buddy that worked for a nonprofit down in Atlanta, and he was not complaining, but he was talking through all these challenges that he was going through. And I was thinking, these are solvable problems. This doesn't seem insurmountable. Dabbled in, you know, WordPress development. And, and I ran my own little blog at the time. This was 2007. So I think I was a little early on, you know, dabbling in technology. You graduated from college in 05. Yeah. And the next time... I was like, maybe my roommate at the time was a programmer. He was on the development team at this speaking agency. And he had written all custom software, totally homegrown CRM. And it was awesome. And it had a built-in telephony thing. So he was. we had soft phones, IP-based phones um, that connected to 
the homegrown CRM. It was amazing, like unbelievable developer. And he was my roommate. And I came home from talking to this buddy of mine that worked for this nonprofit. And I said, hey, my friend was talking about all these things. Do you think that maybe we could cobble something together? He's like, yeah, I think so. And so I write a little proposal. And the next time I hang out with Jonathan, I'm like, hey, how, how are those challenges? He's like, oh man, it's we still have all these issues. And I slide this little one pager and I had t-shirt sizes on it. And I was like, well, this price range solves these problems. And it was whatever, 17.5. And like this price range, 25K solves these problems. And then like this bottom one, 32.5, this solves all of your problems. They go away. And he was like, interesting. You can do all this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can do it. Narrator, he could not do it. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of businesses have been born like that though. Yeah. I knew I could figure it out. And, uh, I mean, I'll be dang. He goes and <laughs> takes that little sheet to his boss. I get a signed contract for twenty-five grand and a check for twelve five, and we're off to the races. And I'm like, oh boy, now we got to build this thing. So I'm like, John, my roommate. I'm like, John, we're about to build some software. I need you to. I'm well, really, you're about to build some software, and I'm about to <laughs> crack the whip and get you to build it. So that experience was my first ever custom software development project. And it was dead on arrival. Didn't pan out. It delivered and it solved the problems that we set out to solve. The thing that I didn't learn was that software is never done. It is never done. It takes continual gardening and investment and pruning and it's dynamic. You know, the systems and services that you're interacting with, they change. And so therefore you need to change. I did not anticipate that. We, when we deliver it, the requirements generally stayed the same, but the underlying systems that we were interacting with had changed. And so I was like, hey, this is new scope and customer didn't like that. So I started to see if we're not going to get new budget for this, then this is going to eat through our margins. And like this math just won't work. We can't pencil this out. So I think I learned a lot through it. I mean, a ton through it. I also learned, man, I'm paying this developer a ton of money. I should be on that side of the transaction. And so that was, and I really enjoyed talking through the designs and the schemes and all that stuff. And it was enough of a puzzle for me. I had just had a toe in the water at that point where I knew that I felt like I would enjoy being on the developer side of things. So that was my first entrance into a technology, like full scope technology product. I'm like, I could spend my whole career doing stuff like this. One of the things you mentioned was you enjoyed the design and architecture of the system. You didn't have a ton of that in your background up to that point. I don't think so but yet you knew enough of, you know, technology, you understood relational databases and and you were able to piece that together? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. When I was at this agency, you know, booking keynote speakers, because my roommate was the developer, the CRM that he had built had a lot of prospect data in it. And I kept wanting more and more access, like granular access to that data so it would help me smile and dial better. And he said gosh, man, you're just exhausting my email and 
shoulder tapping me. He's like, here's a read-only user to our SQL database. And so I downloaded a little MySQL client. He put the correct permissions on it so I wouldn't torch the production database. But I cut my teeth writing SQL and like grabbing all this information. And that was so fun. No nice, pretty user interface. Your raw table access. Yep. And to get the information you want, there's no view for it. You literally have to go write a query and... Yeah, and export it to Excel and then do a pivot table and then graph it out in Excel or whatever. So I understood databases through that. And people may be thinking, why is the salesperson writing SQL statements? It made sense to me. Excel is a database, if you really think about it. And a lot of business people spend time in Excel, so SQL didn't seem that much different. So I liked that part of it, got the rep doing this project on the software side of it. I knew in college I'd, like I said, dabbled in WordPress stuff. So I knew HTML and CSS, but that interstitial piece of how do you get, I know how you get HTML on the page, I know how browsers work, but I don't know how you get from the database to the browser. And that backend software development was the missing piece for me. In, in the early 2000s, I remember my first job out of school that I talked about earlier, we were going to redo our website. And the website at the time, each page was individually coded and linked together. And I remember talking with our IT director who said, okay, Scott, as you're going to go redo our website, the website has to be database driven. Like the idea of a content management system really didn't exist. So you're cutting your teeth right as that technology is really coming to fruition. I want to go back to, you talked about when you slid that sheet of paper across, there's something you said that really, really jumped out at me. And I think this is something that is so important and is now actually challenging me to think about how we sell. You didn't go in with a list of features for this much money. We will build feature A, feature B, feature C. You approach it as for this much, we'll solve these problems for this much. We'll solve the next set. At the end of the day, nobody cares about features. You had the foresight, you had the understanding, you had the sales acumen very early in your career to be able to say, this is, we're not selling you features, we're solving your problems. Did you just instinctually know to do that? Or had you read books or listened to sales coach? Like, how did you know to do that? I don't know. But that is a big part of Simple's company culture today. In fact, this is one of my favorite, sorry, I'm just kind of jumping forward to the present. In our onboarding process, when we hire someone new, um, there's a great video. It is a technical talk. It was given at a technical conference, at a programming conference, but the name of the talk is called Hammock Driven Development. And it's by this guy, Rich Hickey, who you know was a language architect for Clojure, this programming language. But the nature of the talk is how to solve problems. And he references a couple books. And so the thought is this, most of your time as a developer is not spent hand to keyboard writing code. It's actually thinking about what is the problem actually trying to solve. And so therefore, a lot of your time should be spent laying down in a hammock, thinking about the problem in the context and the, what the possible solutions are and what the trade-offs are. What are the pros and cons and you know risks and all that stuff. So when someone joins Simple, we send them that talk. And then two days later, they get a hammock in the mail. And you're expected to be away from the keyboard in a hammock, thinking through 
what are the problems? How can we solve these problems better? So I don't know where it came from initially. I don't know if it was something I just got ingrained from being around dad and pops and uncle, but that just has always seemed natural to me. Like even it is so such a core thing in how we work today and how I've always worked is like we're solving problems. Some people don't like that. You can sub out problems for opportunities or whatnot, but I feel really strongly that if you're not creating value in business by solving problems, then it's probably immoral. Like you really should be creating value by solving these problems. So for people that are listening, like write that down and figure out how to put that into practice in your business. And I don't know if it was like this for you getting simple off the ground, but for me and for most founders, you are the sales engine for the company, at least in the early days. And again, for people that are listening, if you're thinking about getting something started, you need to be prepared to be selling. And this mindset will help you accelerate that greatly. Yeah. It doesn't even feel like selling. It feels like, hey, we're discovering something together along with this customer, this partner, whomever of, you know, what's the highest order bit? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? What's the thing that if you could automate, you could. And those are all the opportunities and things that we look for. And I think that we just naturally look for and stack rank them and then just knock them out. Moving around, you find yourself in Austin at some part of your career. Who did you work for when you first moved to Austin? I worked for a company called Upstream Communications. It was during the 2010 midterms. This was a company that, it was three parts. Um, they did mail marketing, political mail mailers. They did political consulting, and they did digital strategy. It was actually Carl Rove's former company. So when he went to work for the administration, he had to divest his business interest. And so that company basically split with the directors. We all officed in the same office building, but I went to work for the digital side, working for campaigns and exploratory committees during the 2010 midterms. Tangibly, what was the work like there? That was actually my first real developer job. So I had just wrapped up that project, that nonprofit project, that first one. And I was like, I got to be a developer. I really want to close that interstitial programming, back-end programming. And so I tried finding that in Nashville, actually. Couldn't find it. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting, this job opportunity in Austin. Float a resume out there, and they were like, how quick can you get here? And I was like, I can, I don't know, next week. And then I go there, and their job offer on the spot. When can you start? I don't know. I'm brand new married. Like, I was married three months ago. They're like, can you start Monday? I'm like, which Monday? They're like, the next one. And I'm like, I need to talk to my wife and figure this out. So what I told them was, I was very clear. I don't know a lot of the technical questions that you're asking me and talking through some of these, you know, technical concepts. I don't know. I was very clear up front. This will be learning, but I'm very hungry and I'll figure it out and I'll make good on your offer to me. And that I really cut my teeth. A lot. I'm so thankful for some of the lead devs that were there that kind of took me under, under their wing and helped me, you know, learn the gaps that I had. And I felt like I did actually earn good on that. And by the end of my tenure there, I was leading the teams and it was an, an intensive, almost boot camp. I would have really benefited from some of these technology and coding boot camps that are out there today. But you got it on the job. 
I got it on the job. And I'm so thankful for the the CEO of that company that took a chance on me. And it really helped launch part of my career in that space. Being that this is a political consultancy, I would imagine that their business is very seasonal. I guess there's stuff to do all the time, but like it really picks back up. So when you came into this job, was it with the expectation that after the election was over, it was job was done? Or was the expectation that no, this is an indefinite gig? Um, that's a good insight. I mean, there was very many late nights there. Although it wasn't stated, there was an expe- a cultural expectation that you would be, like if you left the office at midnight or one, like that's what you were doing because, you know, the c- campaign demanded that. I can't remember when I rolled off, if I rolled off during one of the slow seasons, but it's funny. So we did campaign websites, we did digital ads, we did, you know, imagine a campaign is like a small business that has this ephemeral you know, time to exist. And then if your horse wins the race, then, you know, you disband and I don't know, maybe you get picked up and you go work in government. That's another thing I learned. Campaigns are very different from a governmental role. They're just very, very different. Did you have aspirations to go into the government? No. This was just a tool for me to learn technology. But also we built these, you know, it was like a little small business, but we also had a donation platform called U.S. Contributions that had was homegrown and did political contributions. And I think I had approached the CEO, the guy who was running upstream and said, hey, it would be good to have some ballast for the ship and have some normative. So it wasn't so lop, cash flow and revenue wasn't so loppy during off seasons. Maybe if we had like a different customer segment we could go after, because the if you just reskin this application, we could go for general nonprofits. We could go for you know general payment processing or whatever. He was right to say those are completely different businesses, completely different go-to-market strategies, and you know whatnot. So, thanks, but no thanks. And there was a germ there of, hmm, I think that would be a interesting thing to build at some point. The seed was planted. Yeah. What was the tipping point for you to say, my time here is done. I'm going to, I'm going to move on to the next. I got recruited away. I went to work again for this, uh, little consumer email startup. It was a guy named Noah Kagan, who was number 30 at Facebook, number six at Mint, kind of a fire brand, this company called AppSumo that was growing really fast. And was like, wow, this is, this would be fun to go on this rocket ride and learn under, under this guy, how this at the time, Groupon was really big. So daily emails and, and deals, you know, AppSumo at the time, the tagline was daily deals for geeks or, you know, for nerds or whatever. And we'd sell Photoshop bundles and, you know, online courses and whatnot. I know that at some point I've bought WordPress plugins and probably half a dozen software apps through AppSumo. Yeah. So I went to work for AppSumo and... I learned a lot there. I learned more about marketing there than I have anywhere else. One of my favorite things there was Noah was very clear on the company and that the company will have a singular focus. He was like, there's only three things this business will ever focus on. Profit, growth, or engagement. And we will only focus on one of those at a time. So when I was there, we were only focused on growth. The only metric, the singular metric that we were focused on was net new emails per day. How did you go about collecting those? So imagine you do a deal 
on a WordPress thing, a WordPress plugins or a group of WordPress plugins, do people share that deal with their other friends, which they then subscribe? That was the metric on which that deal was evaluated on. And was there an incentive to share it with your friends? Yeah, yeah. We built all internal tooling around ads and sharing and and going viral and whatnot. But I think at the time, the list was 85,000 email subscribers. And it was, the goal was, how do we get the city of Austin? Yeah, how do we 5X this and get 500,000 email subscribers in six months? And we did it. So credit to him for we're only going to focus on net new email subscribers per day. And the dev team there had built this amazing integration with Facebook ads where the margins were actually great on that business as well because you're essentially selling software products. And all the margin that came in from an ad that was spent, you know, from a deal that was doing really well would go back into refuel more ad buys. And so it was just like automated. And so it would just spiral out. And we were spending 100K a week or so on Facebook. And it was backing out. Clearly the profit didn't matter. If you were pumping every dollar back into growth, profit was not the motive at that point. He was running at break even. It was still, the business could have been profitable, but it was being intentionally run at break even for growth. And I'd just never been exposed to that sort of thinking before, but I appreciated it. How did the work vary from the political consultancy to AppSumo? And let me break that up into two parts. How did the work differ and how did the culture differ? Yeah, I mean, the culture, I'll start with the culture question first. Actually, in some ways, it's very similar in the sense that you have a mission and like you're really focused on this singular mission. But in some ways, the political consulting, it wasn't necessarily our mission. We were more partners in a mission with the candidate. And when that candidate either shut down their campaign or got elected, there, you know, our mission was on to the next thing. You were a hired gun. We were a hired gun. We were mercenary. And with AppSumo, it was like, this is 100 miles an hour and like we're getting after it. And it was that way all the time. Was it easier to be bought in at AppSumo where it was the company's mission than it was to be bought in at the consultancy? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, we're responsible for our own success or failure. You were there in the growth phase. Were you there in either the engagement or profitability phase? No. Okay. What was the tipping point for you to exit AppSumo? It wasn't my choice. The founder decided we're going to move to profit phase and we went from 25 people to four. Wow. Yes. Deep cuts. Deep cuts. But it was very clear. (laughs) This is him. I'm moving to the profit phase. You guys. You're not coming along. Are not going to the profit phase. So it's pretty ruthless, but it was very clear up front. This is what we're going to focus on. I guess it didn't dawn on me until that, you know, walk on a Friday, like, oh, I'm not coming along. And then the next person goes on a walk and the next person goes on. And there's a diaspora now of some of those folks I work with. I still keep in touch with them. And they've coincidentally all gone on to found their own companies and do their own things. And each are successful in their own right. So no bad blood there. Hard as those kind of experiences are, it's hard to see it in the moment, but they can be good, right? It created an opportunity for you to go do something else that has led you here. And 
I think back to one of my early jobs early in my career, the company ended up actually going out of business about 60 days after my first child was born. Company just shut its doors and no severance, no nothing. Like we didn't even have the option to go on Cobra because there was no company plan behind it to offer the Cobra through. And, you know, I worked with some of the greatest people there and many of them I talk to on a very regular basis, one of which is actually part of our team today. And I also got a front row seat to what not to do. And as painful as it was, it was a good learning and growing experience for me. Yeah, it was for me too. I did challenge him on that walk because I had numbers of the deals that I was doing. And I said, man, even if you do switch to profit, the margin my salary is a percentage of the deals that I've done and like working on sourcing deals for the list. Like the margins is 6X higher than my salary. Like why would you cut someone that has is bringing in this much extra margin? That doesn't make sense to me. So it was weird because I did feel kind of like objectively on that walk, like I was evaluating and not from a like, ah, like you're changing my life and I don't like my life to be changed. It really was, hey man, I understand why you're doing this, but this isn't making business sense to me. Like, what is there something else going on here? How did he answer that? I don't think he expected it. I think he really thought like, man, am I, you're bringing up some good points. If I'm making the right call here. Cause him to question. Yeah, but they ended up going different ways and we still, you know, played tennis and hung out. But yeah, there's some semblance of a relationship there still. After that, was it Aetna that came next? Next was a company called Active Prospect, which was in the CPL or cost per lead industry. Like Zillow's business is basically getting leads and then selling those leads to mortgage brokers or realtors or whatever. So Active Prospect built this piece of software that facilitated delivering those leads into CRMs like Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever. And then doing intelligent routing. Like like imagine you're a realtor and Zillow says, all right, well, we'll give you leads. And you're like, well, I'm a realtor in the Metroplex. Like, I don't want leads from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't want to pay for those. And Zillow's like, well, you just, you get what we get. Like, we our software doesn't have that. But there was this mechanism where you could return a lead in under five seconds and you wouldn't have to pay for it. So that tool called Lead Conduit essentially did that. Instead of delivering the leads, the realtor or the mortgage broker or whatever, going to Zillow said, instead of delivering the leads to me directly, deliver them to Lead Conduit. And then I can go into Lead Conduit and configure the parameters that I don't want, like maybe I want leads in the Metroplex where someone was looking at a house or a mortgage for over a million dollars and I only want to do jumbo loans or something like that. They had the ability to configure like their market and only pay for those leads. And that was what Active Prospect did. That was technology at scale. We had a trillion row MySQL database and it was, we were processing 60 leads a second. Like it was a impressive performance business. Man, a trillion rows. That's a lot of data. Yes. And because of, there was a recent, at that time, uh, TCPA went into effect, the Telecommunications Pri Privacy Act. The government said, you have to keep every customer that signs up for an email list or that opts in, you have to have proof of express prior written consent. So that's why you had to keep that data around even though you may not use it. If you got audited. If you got audited or you had a suit come, you had to say, hey, here's the proof of opt-in right here. 
So that's why you had these very, very large data sets on behalf of customers. Real estate and mortgage in particular, also highly regulated industries. Before I started my company, had a, a project with a large mortgage company headquartered on the West Coast. And we were implementing CRM, implementing Salesforce.com for them. And we spent a lot of time, not just with their salespeople and, and IT and marketing, but we actually had to spend a lot of time with their legal because they were using the system to generate marketing materials. So if a mortgage broker wanted to generate a flyer, they were going to do a joint open house with a, with a realtor. They could go into the system and they could they could do it. Well, each one of those had to have the appropriate footers that had all the you know legalese and from state to state that would vary and it would change from time to time. And if they got audited, they had to be able to go pull that document and demonstrate that they were using the right disclosure on January 2nd, 2014, or they could be in, in serious trouble. So, yeah, very similar. Yeah. I take it you were doing development work there as well. Yep. Okay. What came after that? Aetna came after that, but I started Simple while I was at Active Prospect. On just as a side thing? Yeah. So the church that I was going to at the time, you know, when... I found this out in nonprofits, and it, it's a pretty common story, but the church I was going to at the time decided that they needed to, you know, rebrand and new website and whatnot. So myself, along with the designer that went to the church, were voluntold that this you're on the team to do this. And it was truly just moving from one content management system to another, which the scope ended up being, let's change all the things. So nothing was off the table. Email marketing, let's move it to MailChimp. Kids check-in, let's move it to something else. Let's move volunteer scheduling to something else. Let's look at online giving. And I had a particular bone to pick with online giving. The system that we were using at the time, first you had to create an account to give. Then you had to log in to give. And this was before, like, this was probably 2012, 2012 before you have LastPass and OnePass and whatnot. So the password rules for this online giving system were so Byzantine and I would create some obscure password. I'd forget it, couldn't find that post-it. I'd come back a month later to, to give to my church and I can't remember my password and I have to reset it. And my new password has to be different from my past 10 and it has to conform to these ridiculous rules. And I'd be like, I cannot be the only one having this problem. We gotta solve this. And so I looked for something off the shelf, couldn't find something that fit the bill. And I was like, I'm a software developer by trade. I, I can probably build something really quick. And thinking through what I was exposed to at U.S. contributions and the political fundraising, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I know all the ingredients to build this thing. I just should just put pen to paper and do it. And wrote the first version bespoke just for that church and then kind of dusted my hands off. And it wasn't until about six months later that some of the staff from the church said, hey, there's a lot of other churches in, that are being planted in Austin that are asking us what we're using. Have you thought about turning this into a business? And it was like an anvil on top of my head. Like, oh man, it's staring me right, right in the face. It wasn't in the back of your mind the whole time? Not really. From the technical like code level, I did not build a multi-tenant database. I built a single database specifically for this organization. So there was no concept of accounts or sign up or anything like that. I mean, it was purely just a bespoke database. 
in our organization, we talk about projects and products, and those are two very different things. This sounds like a project. Yes. Custom one-off. Real quick, as you were telling the story of the pain of the process, create the account, sign in, give, reset your password a month later, and so forth, I'm starting to see where the name Simple came from. Is that accurate? You're a quick one, Scott. I don't pick up on many things too fast, but you made it obvious for me. (laughs) All right. Six months after you launched this for your church, the anvils dropped on your head. I love that analogy. I'm going to start using that. I talk about the the epiphanies that I've had, but I'm going to I'm going to talk about the anvil moments. It's because I love Looney Tunes so much. Man, our kids don't know what they're missing out on. Saturday morning cartoons and yeah, love the Looney Tunes. What was the first step? Was it I'm going to go out and find business? Is it I'm going to start rebuilding this to be a scalable multi-tenant application? I'm thankful in the sense that the the initial customers just kind of came to me. There was a guy that ran a design shop that was kind of reskinning church websites and nonprofit websites who had provided the initial design for our church's website. And he basically handed over Photoshop files and said, hey, cut these up and turn it into something. So I had a built-in pipeline already through him of going, hey, I'm working on this other project. The thing that they have is not great either. Could you help with this? And so I really got pulled into it. That's a lot of how our product development goes today. We do not build spec software. We don't build anything based on a hunch. It's almost all of the things that we build, products, services, et cetera, or we get pulled into. People say, hey, we really need X, or we need to solve X problem. If it's strategic and it makes a lot of sense, and we feel like we can be really, really good at it, then we move forward. But so short answer is we just got pulled in into stuff. And were you working at Aetna at this time? I left to work on Simple for a year. I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna really go for it and invest in a lot of time in writing and developing. And my wife, who we haven't talked about that much, was the breadwinner that year. And she was so supportive and awesome. You know, we had just found out we were pregnant with our firstborn. It was a big jump, but she kind of pulled us through doing interior design stuff. And and then after that, uh, went back and I got recruited from a guy who was a colleague at Active Prospect and he went on to Aetna and then he pulled me into to Aetna about a, a year or so later. Roughly what time frame is this? It's 2013 or 14. First code was written for Simple was written on July 4th of 2012. And that was the project or that, that was, was the project? That was the project, yep. Okay. And at that time, I think it's safe to say like you hadn't incorporated, you hadn't set up a business. No. This was, I'm just trying to help my church. It's a volunteer effort. At what point did you say, okay, we're actually going to turn this into a legitimate business and we're going to get an LLC or I don't know what your structure is, but you know, when did you file to become a legal entity? When I started that project, that initial project in Nashville, I had created an LLC in Tennessee. And at some point I wrapped what is now simple, the product into that LLC. And it wasn't until much, much later that I like redomesticated that entity into Texas. I already had some entity that was around. Okay. You mentioned we hadn't talked much about your wife. I think back to you've been married three months, you get on a plane to interview in Austin, Texas. 
what was her response? Obviously you went, but what was her response when you came home? It's like, hey, babe, we need to be in Austin on Monday. Yeah. What did she have to say? Monday's too quick. (laughs) How about a couple Mondays from now? So she's been so awesome and so supportive. It was an adventure. I think it was probably the best thing for our marriage. We didn't know a soul in Texas and specifically Austin. And, you know, when we had gotten married in Nashville, like we had two distinct friend groups. I had my friends in Nashville. She had her friends and we would bounce back and forth on the weekends between hanging out with different friend groups. But when we moved to Austin and moved to Texas, people met us as a unit. They met us as like, these are the Brooks. And it was, there was no delineation of friend groups. And so it was great for our marriage to like go on this adventure together. That project that I'd worked on way back in Nashville and our taxable income was below the poverty line for sure. Like it was in the twenties. And I remember getting that offer from upstream and going, we made it. And it wasn't a big number, but I was like, we made it. You can quit your job. You can do whatever you want. Like I got this. I felt like we were living high on the hog, but it was a really fun time in our marriage. So you talked about it being an, an adventure. And one of the words I'm thinking about your wife is, is, is she adventurous? And it's, so much more than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Is she the risk taker? I'm definitely not a risk taker. Despite being a business owner and entrepreneur, I think I'm really risk averse, actually. I have to see, and we'll talk about that in a little bit and, and how that plays out. But yeah, she frolics and asks why not. And that is not me. All right. You've got a good paying job and you leave and you go down to zero income. You talked about she was incredibly supportive. She was the breadwinner. What was that conversation like when you said to her, I want to do this? She's like, yes, let's do it. No hesitation, no thought, no, let's put a plan together and, you know, pencil this out and and, and see how long we can make the money last. It was just like, we'll figure it out. Feet first. Yeah. Jump. Yeah. She's like that. In retrospect, that is so empowering. Just Like if you have someone who's like, hey, let's tap the brakes a little bit. Like, I like where your head's at. Like, let's think through this. It may have turned out differently, but to have someone who's like such a cheerleader and say, yeah, let's go for it. Almost every founder we've interviewed has an incredibly supportive spouse. And I'm in the same boat. My wife was much more risk averse and it was more of a process. But when we made the decision to do it, she was and continues to be incredibly, incredibly supportive. Yeah, Rachel's name is not on the website. She is every bit a co-founder and a founder of this business as I am, probably more so. I love that. I mean, she's like chief psychologist. I would come home and, or I was home and would say, ah, like I'm wrestling through this. She has no idea what Ruby on Rails is or a Postgres database is. And, but she would sit there and nod and listen and, that sounds really hard. And she still does it to this day. She's so patient and just is a great listener and cheerleader. Do you find it hard to talk about work at home? No. Do you? Sometimes when it's been a tough day or we're in a tough season, I know that my wife has her own, you know, things going on. And, you know, a lot of times I don't want to put that on her. Now, I'm not a very good poker player. And it shows on my face. I wear my heart on my sleeve and it's pretty obvious, but I think we've, we've actually even more recently started talking more about those kinds of things than, than we have in the past. And so I guess it goes in spurts. 
Yeah, there's some things that I I need time to mull over and think through before I kind of want to expose it. And I just need to sit with it and just like really wrestle with an idea. And But it's not like I'm withholding something from her wanting to like... On the flip side, there are some things that I get really emotional about. And I'm like, I just come out of my office immediately from a call. And I'm like, ah, you're not going to believe, you know, and she is still supportive, but she's is that psychologist, which is like, hey, let's not catastrophize. Let's think of this in context, like what's really going on. Here's their possible motivations. Could Wow. Yeah. That's really impressive. Yeah. She should be a hostage negotiator. <laughs> like you need somebody with that mentality. If you've met my three-year-old, you'll realize she is a hostage negotiator. Fair enough. Real quick, we were talking before we started the interview, we both use something in our organizations called Culture Index. Yep. What is your pattern? Oh, I'm a craftsman. What are you? I'm an administrator with an AD conflict, and that creates all kinds of consternation for me with decision-making. Where are you on the logic side of things? Man, I don't remember. I'd have to go pull up my chart. I'm low ingenuity, but I'm high logic. For those of you that aren't familiar, Culture Index is a personality profile kind of thing, similar to DISC or Myers-Briggs. And it's been incredibly helpful for our organization. And I think it's been incredibly valuable in helping us understand ourselves as much as it is trying to help us understand other people in the organization. And as an aside, I'm going to say that a quarter to a third of our people are craftsmen. And we've had excellent luck with hiring craftsmen, especially for technical positions. I was so anti-personality test. I did not want to do it. You were going to say something. I am the exact same way. When I was in college, I graduated college in 2003, and I'd go to these career fairs, and the first thing that all of them would have you do is go through some kind of personality assessment. And I thought, oh my gosh, this another one? Like, really? There's no value in this. As I've gotten older and more mature, I've come to see incredible value. And in the last few years, between Culture Index, Strengths Finders, Enneagram, Six Working Geniuses, and I feel like I'm forgetting one, like for whatever reason, I've found myself in a situation where I've taken a whole, whole bunch of these. And each one is like peeling another layer of the onion and helping me understand myself. And as I'm reading some of these reports, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is me to a T. And with one of them, I think it was Enneagram. It didn't just say you do these things, but it actually got into why I have these behaviors and thought patterns. And my mind was just absolutely blown. What's your Enneagram? I'm a nine, I think wing three. Yeah, I'm an eight. I have a great story about Culture Index. A buddy of mine, this is a couple of years ago, we have a position open for kind of sales at Simple. And this running buddy of mine, I was like, you know, he's doing solar sales, commission-only solar sales, and he's crushing it. And I'm like, man, you would be so good working for Simple. And he's like, I'd hate it. I was offended. I was like, why would you hate it? Like, we run together. You know, we hang out. Like, I don't understand. And he's like, I would hate it. We would not work well together. And I was like, you're wrong. And I'm like, you should just interview. Just interview. And he wouldn't do it. Fast forward a couple of years, we implement Culture Index. And I'm like, ooh. And I'm, you know, I came around too. I'm like, this is really valuable. I've learned about a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about our team. I was, you know, stiff-armed it for the longest time, but now I'm a believer. And so I go, hey, John, I've got this thing called Culture Index. I'm not trying to hire you. I know that you don't want to work here, but would you just take 
indulge me. Just indulge me. Just take this. And, you know, in Culture Index, you create basically the seed profile of what you, the characteristics of the particular job and the role and what you think is would be a great fit for it. And that's one of the benefits that they say of Culture Index is like, this is as objective as you could get at hiring, at least for culture. Because culture is kind of like, could I hang out in an airport with him for four hours and would I, would I like him? And he was that for me. That's why I thought he'd be a great fit. So he takes it, 1% match. He would have been a train wreck in this role. Again, he did not want to take it. He finally took it, you know, kicking and screaming. And I said, you're not going to believe this, but it's so good that we didn't work together. That's hilarious. He knew something I didn't. I was so convinced that he'd be a good fit. Self-awareness is really important. Yeah. So I'm going to get him at some point. Someday. Different role. Yeah, different role. Yeah. I'm going to get him. Let's go back to getting the business started. You took a year and your wife carried the load. What was the impetus for you to go back to a W-2 kind of a job? I mean, frankly, that simple just didn't have enough to support a full-time gig. I mean, I spent a lot of heads down time basically building out the multi-tenancy of that application and taking it from a project to a product. I like the way you phrased that earlier. And that doesn't really drive value for customers. It drives value for the business, but it's not really solving problems for customers. But that needed to happen. You have to do that in the software SaaS world. In particular with, you know, any sort of payments or money movement, the challenge is, is you have to build the whole pipeline to get a dollar through. It's not capital intensive in the same way that you have property, plant, and equipment, but it is intensive in the sense that you're committing a lot of time to get a single thing. Like, there is no MVP. Like, the MVP is the whole thing. I don't know if you've seen that uh, picture online, but there's a meme of, like, how to draw an owl. And it's like, step one, draw circles. Step two, draw the rest of the owl. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's actually one of Twilio's core values is draw the rest of the owl. Wow. And it's funny, like if you look at the meme, it literally is like kids circles. And then it's like almost like this beautiful wood carving illustration of an owl that's like has all this fine detail. That's what it felt like building the initial version of Simple is like I'm building the owl, but there's not a lot of revenue. I think the first year it made $43 the entire year in 2014. You know, today, that won't get you uh, a full family fed at Chick-fil-A. It will not. It will actually not pay your server bill or your domain hosting or any cost of, I mean, take any line item and it doesn't doesn't cover it. Yeah, that's rough. To an acronym and a term just to help define for listeners that may not be in the world, talk about what multi-tenancy is. So it's the concept that if you build a a software product, you're not going to build a database for every single customer and spin up an instance of MySQL, which is a database engine for every single customer. You're going to run all those transactions. You can think of it like, let me map it to Excel. You're not going to create a, if you have a an Excel spreadsheet with transactions in it, you're not going to, you can put all the transactions in one sheet. You're not going to create different tabs for different sheets. You may have a column that says like customer and that way, you would be able to run pivot tables and like do group buys and filters on that customer. So multi-tenancy is essentially making um, a single sheet database. You can build it once and everybody has the same experience. That's right. And then the other was um, 
MVP. This is not most valuable player. This is minimum viable product. So the bare minimum that the, the application has to do in order for it to be useful for somebody. Yeah, the MVP is essentially the final the final thing in the sense that if you could call something final, I mean, there's something we're still continuing to work and improve on it today. You spent a year, made $43. I imagine that today you guys have iterated on your pricing uh, models and and have, you know, got to a much different place, but you, you had to go back to a W-2 for a time. How long was that? Six years I worked at Aetna. Funny enough, this may be surprising to folks. I actually didn't leave Aetna until 2020. July of 2021. Wow. So Simple has been a side thing for a long time. I had four full-time employees while I was still a W-2. What was that dynamic like for them? Hey, our boss actually has another job, but this is our full-time job. Did that create any friction or, or, or difficulties with y'all? I mean, I think people were just like baffled. Nobody at my W-2 knew about it. There was a couple like colleagues that knew about it, but I don't think they knew the extent. Like I've got a whole team that was working on it. And my team certainly was, at simple was just, just thought it was comical. It is what it is. We're going to do it, what we get paid to do. And yeah, I felt really strongly that I can be a good follower when I need to be, but my preference is to own the whole thing and to lead it. And then there was something in between while I was at Upstream, I started a company with a buddy of mine that, hypothesis was, it was called Speaker Wiki. And the hypothesis was the agency that we worked at, you didn't need agents. It was a search engine and you would check out a speaker in the same way that you check out shoes on Zappos or Amazon or whatever. So we raised a little bit of money for that. I mean, it was very short-lived and I started it with that same guy from Nashville who was best man in my wedding and I was best man in his. And I realized I did not like that pressure of having outside capital. And I didn't also did not like having a partner. Love him, did not like the partnership dynamic. So I needed to own and lead and be the sole. I need to be my own little megalomaniac. And Aetna was the seed capital. My W-2 was the seed capital for that. There's only one way to do it. Something has to support it. So me carrying another job was the way to do that. I trust you were doing well at Aetna and at a minimum, you know, you had a steady income. It was predictable. I imagine working for a large health insurance company, you also had great benefits. What was the moment that you said, okay, I can go do simple full-time now? Again, I was pulled into it. Aetna was a great job and I had a lot of fun there. And I continued to learn a lot in another highly regulated industry. And I learned about scaling and automated deployments, but I talked to my COO and I was like, hey, it was very clear my business partner in Simple, we were not managers. We did not want to lead people. It just wasn't our skill set. Actually, both of us are craftsmen on Culture Index. We came to find out later, but we worked really well together building product. And so when we looked at each other and we were like, all right, we need to hire someone to like manage this company. So we hired a COO and we were going to build all the org under him. And I kept asking him every quarter or so, who can we hire and backfill some of the stuff? Like, what is non-strategic for you to work on that we can hire and take off your plate? And one day he said, it's you. We need to hire you. The business needs more of your time and I need more of your time and I can't compete 
with Aetna for your time. So you need to move. That is fascinating. When he made that statement, was he needing your time from a hands-on-the-keyboard execution standpoint, or was it, I need to tap more into the visionary and be able to help better execute the mission? I think it was both. I think he needed, I was kind of the code czar. So like I approve every pull request, even though I may not be writing all the code, like I'm responsible for reviewing on it, reviewing it. And so there'd be features or, you know, problems that were queued up and they would queue up and he'd have customers waiting on them. Be like, I need you to review these. And I'd be gassed. I mean, be so, I mean, I saw the sun come up. I mean, I was doing 80, 100 hour weeks, like nothing. Between both jobs. Between both jobs. Like I would finish at six at Aetna, have dinner. I'd go back into my office and I'd hang up. I'd turn the office lights off at two in the morning and I'd wake up 9 a.m. for a stand-up call with Aetna the next morning and do it all over. And I did that for not 2 a.m. all the time, but very, very regularly. You had some of that early in your career. You talked about the the consultancy, like that was the lifestyle have you always been that way? Like, were you the kid that was studying till two o'clock in the morning in college or? Didn't study. Yeah. Not with academia, but I'm not averse to working hard. Yeah. If there's any fault I have, it's I don't turn off. I will work very, very hard. Do you require much sleep? You know, I got this whoop and I've learned that I require a lot of sleep. So I'm working on that. I require a lot of sleep and it shows very quickly when I don't get enough. I've always been envious of the people that can run on three, four hours of sleep and, you know, do that for days on end without it impacting them. I've got some in-laws that are like that, and I'm just not. Yeah. So going back to Jeff, Jeff is the COO, and he was like, this is the right thing for the business. There's so much growth opportunity here, and you not being here is hindering the, like, day-to-day operational side of things. But there's also such, like, a big growth opportunity and either you don't see it or you see it and you're not willing to take a big leap. I mean, the golden handcuffs are a thing with a large company. I mean, I was doing really well there and I had to walk away from a six figure stock investment and that's nerve wracking. I mean, so, but it was the, it was totally the right thing to do. And the business was at a place where you had enough customers that you felt good about that? Yeah. Or was it still kind of a risky proposition for your family? No, it was not a risky proposition at that point. I totally agree with you. This is the right move. In fact, I've probably I've probably held on too long to the blankie. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, this had been sitting there for a while. The business was at a financial point that you could have done it earlier. You didn't see it. And it really took that conversation with him to pull you over the line? Yeah, I guess I thought like I'm working that doesn't require that much time. I love this phrase of constraints force creativity. And because I had these W-2 jobs and and stuff, we just did things really differently. Product-wise, sales-wise, whatnot. I actually built my own CRM inside of Simple and built my own emailing tool that automated outbound email because I was working a full-time job. And I just didn't think that it really warranted that much of my time. I can manage as is. It was very clear that there was a lot more that we could be doing and I could really accelerate the growth and the product development and 
all that stuff by by going full time. And the team needed it. They needed more FaceTime with me. They needed to hear from the leader on, hey, where are we going? What is the next hill we're going to charge? Like, people need that. You made that move in 2021. It was certainly an inflection point from the standpoint that it was a big move for the business. But has it been an inflection point in terms of sales or, or other performance? Yeah, the funny thing is, is since 2017, we've doubled every year. So we had been doubling prior to that. And Jeff was like, dude, we're doubling and you're not here. Like, what could we do if you were here? So it was definitely viable from that point. What has your family dynamic been like since you made the shift and are only focusing on simple? Are you still doing the midnight, 2 a.m. kind of nights? No, I've hired out a lot of that. I still do rotations on support. You know, I listened to one of your podcasts yesterday and there's like, I like being close to the customer. I feel like my superpower is being able to like interpret the challenges that a customer has and then understand and go, well, and then just ask probing questions, not leading ones, but probing ones and say, what is it that you're really trying to get at? And then be like, that is what we need to build. A lot of times it could be an what comes out of that is a new product or a big enough feature that bolts on to the existing product. And I feel like that's what I'm really good at, but you have to be close to customers to do it. And so a lot of my time is perhaps not doing the development, but sitting close to those customers and trying to understand and be exposed to those problems. I love the product side. I think that if there's anything I hold on to, it'll be the product development. But hiring Jeff, our COO, he does all the sales and so I haven't, I don't do much sales. Uh, I haven't done it since 2019. He does it a lot better than I do. A lot of the more rote customer support stuff where perhaps our documentation isn't there and someone writes in, hey, how do I do this? Like that goes to a team that manages it. But most of what I focus on is kind of the product side of things. And so therefore, I have a lot of time to be in the hammock and think. And I'm more in control of my schedule. And so therefore my family, I don't really work after dinner and go back in the office. I might on occasion, but there's not a need to. It's really self-enforced by me. So yeah, they get to see more of their husband and dad and, and hang. One of the things I love about doing these interviews is everybody's story is different. And before I started doing this podcast, I kind of had a lot of assumptions that everybody kind of followed this path. And the more people I talk to, the more different paths I've seen. And your path of, there's a lot of people that have a side business with their W-2 job, but I've not met many and probably not anybody that has built a meaningful business with employees as a side business. And one of the things that stands out to me in that is you have to have really good people to build a meaningful business where your customers are happy, you're growing, you're doubling every year. How have you gone about finding good people? Luck or the providence of God. It's not by my own work for sure. Let me step back. My partner in the business, he wasn't my partner from the beginning. He was a guy that I'd known from Nashville. We went to the same church together. He's the guy I mentioned who, you know, caught my ear and talked about the Roman Empire, Fall of Rome in Las Vegas. I have a lot of respect for him. He's the smartest person I know. And whenever I would go on vacation and cut 
from the business or want a cut from the business, I'd say, hey, can you babysit everything and just kind of manage it? I would pay him some fee. But he was a contractor for Simple at that point. And then he was like, then he started to see what I couldn't see, that there was a lot of opportunity. And he would say, hey, I want to partner in this business and I, I want to own some of it. And I was like, I've done the partner thing, not interested. And he was like, not being a jerk about it, but he was like, I'm not interested in being your babysitter for this anytime you go on vacation that's not going to happen anymore. And I'm not interested in contracting because I can go do something else. And I was like, oh man. And I said, well, here's my fear. My fear is that I restructure everything because I've kind of got the corporate side dialed in and I'm going to restructure stuff for you to put you as a partner in the business. And then you're going to leave in the short term. You're going to go, this isn't what I thought it was. And I'm going to have incurred all this cost and whatnot. And he was like, I'm worried about in the long term that we have some sort of handshake agreement and that 20 years from now we have some, you know, thriving business and that you, you know, renege on the deal. And I'm like, well, this is great. I'm worried about the short term. You're worried about the long term. I have a long term orientation. Like we're aligned. We're aligned in a lot of ways, but in this way, we're really aligned. I said, propose something and I'll, there's a 90% chance I take whatever you propose. So he proposed it. I'm like, great. And that was the first kind of boss battle or like key thing that happened in the business. Great. I've got someone who is with me in this and they're in the trenches and I have a lot of mutual respect for him and he does for me. And of course, like people do, you butt heads. And we had a lot of that early on and, but we work really well together. And then, I don't know, was that accident? Was it me kind of manifesting that or, you know, God's providence? I don't know. Just common grace. The church I'm going to, guy comes off the mission field. He's looking to get a job. And every job interview he goes to, they say, what have you been doing for the past 10 years? I've been a missionary in India. I'm like, great. Next. Next. Yep. And so I'm like, I've got this little, you know, fledgling business. Like, you want to take a crack at that? Like, pay you, work on growth and smile and dial for me. That's what I need help with. So he does it. And I'll be danged if he doesn't close some of the biggest deals that we've still got to this day. Like he closed him and I was like, hey, man, I'm like, this guy is awesome. I knew at that point, this guy's on borrowed time. Someone's going to recognize his talent and he's going to crush it wherever he goes. So he ends up going somewhere. And for the next four years, I tried to court him back and he tried to court me as his CTO, but I won. I figured out he's like, I respect him a lot too. And I said, hey, do you do any CEO coaching? Like, I think I need a coach. I think someone to help me. And he was like, yeah, I sell blocks of 20 hours. And so I bought 20 hours and I said for the, and he was like, what problems do you face? And I was like, I need a COO. And for the next 20 hours, I'm going to convince you to come work for me. That's what this 20 hours is for. is me lobbying you to come work for me. And it worked. He told me, he said, I won't come unless the Lord calls me to Austin. And so it didn't work and like that didn't work, but eventually they're originally from Austin. They have aging parents. It made sense for them to come back. And he said, is that offer still on the table? I said, you bet it is. So he's been phenomenal. Josh has been phenomenal. Every single person, I don't know what's happened, but we've just knocked the cover off the ball with every single person that we've had. And it feels like all cylinders are firing. We've got an awesome team. And I don't think I really appreciated that 
you know, you mentioned getting older and maturing. I think where I am now, I appreciate that a lot. And we just rebranded. We used to be Simple Donation. Our focus is very simple. We build software and we build relationships. That's it. We're in the people business. So I have, as I've gone on this journey, I've appreciated more of the people side of things, the relational side of things with our customers, with our team. So yeah, accident, I think, is how we've gotten such a great, great staff. What's the biggest surprise that has happened along the way? Good surprise, bad surprise? You know, we haven't had any like big like downsides. There hasn't been like any like, oh my goodness, you know, we're not going to make payroll or something like that. I mean, we've had trip ups and stuff, but I don't know. I think probably the surprise is the success of the business. Like, I think my expectation was this was always a side business and it was held together with chewing gum and duct tape and rubber bands. And perhaps I expected it to fail or I expected it to have some term and it hasn't died. That's the surprise. That's the surprise. We haven't died, which is funny because we celebrated 10 years of marriage a couple of years ago and it was great. It's great landmark. And Rachel said, hey, what's your goal for the next next 10 years? And I said, to be married. And she was like, that's a pretty low bar. And I'm like, in order to succeed, first you have to survive. So there's not many, the divorce rate's really high. Like there's a 50-50 chance. Like if we can survive, then we can think about the success and celebrate, you know, everything else. But yeah, I just, this is my mode right now is I just want to outlast. And so I'm kind of surprised that we've lasted this long in some ways, I'm sure our customers that might listen to this go, oh my gosh, what is going on? <laughs> it's a really stable business. It's great. And my goal with this is to actually run this for the next 40, 50 years to operate it for a long time. I noticed, I don't remember if it was on your website or your LinkedIn profile, but there's a statement that you are you are building this for the long term. Yeah. You are not building this for an exit. Yep. Has that been your mindset from day one? There's been a lot of M&A in the space, mergers and acquisitions. A lot of our competitors have been bought. There was a, a roll-up in 2017 where there was a big PE firm that put together a billion-dollar fund and just started rolling up church donation companies. And one of the conversation points on sales calls with some of our prospective customers were, are you going to be around? Are you planning to be bought and sold? And I was like, what is the answer you want that gets this deal done? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love the transparency. And they were like, we're looking for a long-term partner. And I was like, all right, we're a long-term partner. And truth, again, I have an orientation to run things for long-term and to just, you know, keep my nose to the grindstone. And it comes up. Now we're getting approached, you know, every month there's some new analyst that emails us and this really is something that I'm inspired to run a very, very long time. I stumbled upon this group called the Tugboat Institute. I don't know if you've seen it a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, my people. I felt like I opened the door and it was like, all my people. It's a group of companies that are closely held, privately owned, no outside capital, and are either still run by a family, a founder, employee owned, and they plan to have a kind of a permanent ongoing orientation. And so, and they're very purpose-driven. That's the other thing is they're very, very purpose-driven, mission-driven. And that's why I really want to model simple after that. We are a very kind of mission-oriented 
business based on the customers that we serve. And we want to feel like we're part of their staff and we're kind of helping them along with their mission. I think most founders at some point have had like a, uh oh, like this is really, really bad. One of our guests from a while back started a meat market and within a couple of weeks of opening their refrigeration quit working. And, you know, that's a bad, bad thing when you're, you know, selling perishable food. You told me a story that probably wouldn't have been catastrophic, but it had to have been one of those, oh my gosh, what are we going to do kind of moments? You probably know the one I'm talking about. Would you, would you maybe share that real quick? Yeah, there's nothing like figuring out that you've done something wrong and you want to puke. And this was one of those like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like I'm going to throw up. And what's the one thing that you should never do as a payments company? Double charge someone. And the way that our system works is, you know, people set up recurring donations to these organizations that they want to support. And let's say they give, you know, monthly on the first or whatever. We just built something or we released a bit of code. I released a bit of code. It was me. Because you're doing the reviews. Because I'm doing the reviews. And I actually wrote the original code for this that introduced this bug. So I mean, it was totally on me. And recurring runs and people are getting double charged. I don't know how many people it was at that time, but this particular day, like they got double charged. I saw it happening in real time. But the thing is, it's like, I couldn't stop it. I had to let it finish and then go back and clean up the mess. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, all right, now we're going into crisis management mode. Let's find out who all was, which customers were affected. Let's get in front of this. Let's call them. Let's admit it. Let's own it. And Let's start telling these customers, we're happy to reach out to these donors and admit it on your behalf. Or if you want to reach out to them, like how do you, different customers had different ideas on how to do that. So I tell my partner in the business, I say, hey, I need you to, to basically see what the, give me a list of people that were affected and sort the column by donations. And so there's one guy that was giving 10K a month on a transaction. $120,000 a year is a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And that day he gave 20 grand. And I'm like, all right, that was the largest one that day. And I said, oh, I need to call this customer. I need to call this executive pastor, like stat. So I called him and I said, hey, I'm going to send you a list of everybody that was affected. There's a guy on there who gave 20K today. And you probably want to call that guy first. And he was so just like, he's, been through conflict and crisis before. So he was just very matter of fact, like, just give me the stuff and I'll start working. Panhandle, North Texas guy. It's great to deal with other Texans who just like have a get it done mentality. So I'm like, yeah, I'm so sorry, man. Anything that I'm thinking all these customers are going to churn. They have a right to, they have an expectation of excellence. We failed to deliver. This is going to suck. And so I'm expecting maybe this is the surprise moment. In retrospect, it didn't it didn't seem like that big of a deal. But at the time, it was, I'm going to throw up. He calls me back. He says, you're not going to believe this. I called that guy. And he said, you know what? I really feel like we were undergiving to our church. And can you just reset my monthly donation instead of 10K a month to 20K a month? Wow. And he was like, the executive pastor, you know, on the phone, he goes, Taylor, what? Your mistake, God used this. He's intentionally working amidst your faults. And this was providential. It took for this one man's life for him to be a better steward of 
what this guy's in oil and gas. And so this was the kick in the pants that needed him to take further along in his faith journey. And he was like, it's all working out, man. Like, don't sweat it. I was like, I've got a lot of other customers to call and they may not have this same perspective. But yeah, that is a, that's one of those, we haven't done it since. And there's been a lot of tooling that prevents that from happening again. But that is one of those moments of, oh boy. Yeah, that's a mistake you don't make twice. No. Did you lose some customers over it? Not one. I think there's an important lesson there. And I think I've talked about this in another interview at some point, and it'll probably come up again. We have something at my company called the Mutual Understanding of Imperfection. Yeah, I've read this. I love it. And the idea is if you're selecting us because you think that we're going to be perfect, then you should find somebody else because we are human beings. We are flawed. We will make mistakes. And conversely, we understand that you, Mr. Customer, are also humans and you will make mistakes. And we need to go into this engagement knowing that we're both flawed and we need to be prepared to have grace for one another when something happens. And I think there's so much to be said about the character qualities of an organization, of an individual, when you mess up, how you handle it. And it sounds like you went about it the exact right way. At some point, you are going to screw up and you made it right. Yeah, that is another thing that I think is really important for us, just culturally, it sets us apart perhaps from our customers is saying, when you have an issue, like we're Johnny on the spot, we're going to get it done. And when you email us, it doesn't go into a support queue and you get a number back and it's like, hey, your ticket number or whatever. I don't do it as much now because I'm not on those initial sales calls. But a lot of time I was giving out my personal phone and going, if you have any issue, ring me and we'll get it done. And I think a lot of people appreciate that. They go, I have a direct line to the CEO who they didn't know was working a W-2 job. But I've got a direct line to the founder and CEO of this company. And they don't know how big it is or how small it is. But that alone, that having that direct line to a, to a title like that, they gave a lot of credence to that. And still a lot of confidence. Yeah. Did you get many phone calls? Yeah, I would give, as I still get some today of some of our kind of larger organizations. And now I'm just traffic cop. I just kind of pass it to the team and some of the ones I take, but I actually love it. I don't try to manufacture crisis to like prove that we're human and we can make things right. But yeah, don't waste a good crisis is what they say in politics. Right. What would you go back and do differently? Nothing. I have zero regrets. Maybe join earlier, but I don't know. I learned a lot. There was a lot of large scaling things that I learned in automated deployments and a lot of technical stuff from Aetna that I learned and brought in to simple, a lot of best practices. I mean, I was exposed to very, very good engineers and I benefited from that and kind of applying that same technology stack to our business. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I would change. I'm very happy and satisfied. So nothing you would change, but is there any advice or words of encouragement that if you could go talk to your younger self, that would have helped make the journey any easier? If you'd pose the question of what advice would you give to someone else, I might answer it differently than what I would say to myself. Go for it. This is something that I, again, we've talked about it earlier, but just to repeat, like solving the problems and figuring out way to like create value. I would do work that I know we wouldn't get paid for just because I knew it was A, the right thing to do. And I knew that the it was really valuable to our customers, it may not be valuable to us. 
And I knew at some point it would snowball into like, we'll get it back. Like, this is the right thing to do. It'll come around. So my advice to a lot of other people that are thinking about starting a business or thinking about starting some new venture is find the problems, solve those problems, find ways to create value. Don't focus on, I've never done a pro forma, you know, PL or projection or anything like that. It's all just a guess. It's BS. And they're always wrong. But if you make something that people want and you solve the problem, that's the only thing that I know how to do. I'm not smart enough to do anything else. What are the parts of the job that you enjoy most? And conversely, what are the parts of the job that you wish you didn't have to do? Yeah, product development is what I enjoy the most. Like the intersection of technology and customers. And I love being that bridge. I love bringing new products to market and bringing new creative ways to solve problems to market. I thrive on that. The things that I perhaps loathe, although um, I only do, I reconcile our books four times a year, once a quarter. Some people might advise that you do that, you know, maybe monthly, but. Yeah, like my brother or my dad or my uncle, the CPAs, they would say. You should listen to them. Yeah, I don't. If I had to do it monthly, I think I'd loathe it, but I manage it by only doing it four times a year. And I just take a, a day and just reconcile everything. Well, again, we have a great team. We have great people. I have one direct report. If I had a lot of direct reports and that direct report is the COO, we work really, really well together. And it doesn't feel like managing. He manages up. I don't really manage down. And I think if I was managing a group of people, I think that'd be really challenging for me. I'm pretty to the point and just, hey, get it done. Like, I don't have time to talk about feelings or anything like that. Just get it done, which is not what you want a manager's persuasion to be. I'm in the right spot for where I need to be right now. I think that's credit to our team. What's next? My goal, it would be to run this thing for the next 30, 40 years. I feel like I'm chief steward. I feel less of like a, a CEO. I'm very open to the fact that one day I may not be this founder. And, or I'll always be the founder, but one day I may not be the CEO. One day I may not be the head of this organization. And that doesn't scare me. We've built a, a great business. We've built a business that solves our customers' needs and is providing a lot of value to our customers. It's providing a place where people can work and provide for their families. I get texts from employees that say, I'm on a date night and I haven't been on a date night in three years. And thank you for this opportunity. There's nothing better than that. For someone to really feel like they're pursuing their calling and yet have time with their family. So if I can just continue doing this for the next 30, 40 years and hear well done, good and faithful servant, that is a good life for me. And invest in my kids and my wife and in marriage. That's next for me. It's just continuing to do that. Is there any thing that we didn't talk about that you wanted to share as part of your story? I don't think so. What do you have in those notes over there? I haven't actually looked at them at all. <laughs> Good for you. I'll show you what I did here in a minute. So we'll land the plane. I didn't know if you're trying to pull something out of me that you knew something I didn't know. I did email Jeff late last night. Did you really? And say, hey, have you got a story? Have you got a, like a question I need of to ask? Of course you did. And I got an out of office and I should have thought way ahead on that. But anyway. Yeah. Well, Taylor Brooks, thanks so much for being on In the Thick of It. Man, it's been a pleasure. I really love 
what you're doing. I mentioned before we pressed record how I listened to a lot of your back episodes and I want to meet everybody that you've had on. And I think this is just really cool. I'm glad that you created this. Well, thank you. Our mission is to inspire and encourage current and future entrepreneurs. And everybody's got a story, whether they think they have wisdom or knowledge to share, they've got a story and there's so much that can be learned through everybody's stories. So thank you for sharing yours. Yeah, man. See you, Scott. Thanks. That was Taylor Brooks, founder and CEO of Simple Donation. To learn more, visit simpledonation.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.